Good morning. <laughs> Ruth 1, 1 through 22. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you in kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severe, severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. The word of the Lord. In the ancient world, if you wanted people to take you seriously, you didn't hand them a list of your accomplishments. You handed them um, uh, 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 your list of descendants. 
your genealogy. So when the Bible gives us a genealogy of Jesus, it's the, way, the Bible's way of saying, here's why you should take Jesus seriously. The shocking thing about Jesus' genealogy in the Bible is that there are four women in that list of descendants. One of them is named Ruth. And we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at her story. Why? Well, have you ever experienced a time in life when you feel like everything in your life was falling apart? Things like your relationships, your family, your work, your home, your health, your sense of identity. Times when those things were threatened or even stripped away from you. How do you respond to that? Because the question is not whether your life will fall apart. The question is how will you respond when it does? Some of you have experienced things so painful and difficult that either you don't believe in God or you stopped believing because you couldn't see how a loving God could possibly let something like that happen to you. Others of you have never stopped believing in God, but you're angry or bitter or afraid or depressed or doubting. You may not doubt that God is good for other people, but you do wonder if God is good for you. What do you do? How do you respond when life falls apart. Today is the beginning of Advent, which is the four weeks leading up to Christmas. Now, Advent uh, means arrival, and specifically the arrival of Jesus. So while Christmas is the time when we celebrate the first arrival of Jesus into the world, Advent is the season leading up to Christmas when we recognize that we're still waiting and still longing for Jesus or someone to come and set things right in a world that's falling apart, which means that Advent is a perfect time to study the book of Ruth. Why? Well, there's a big hint right in the first verse. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, Ruth takes place in the days when the judges ruled. If you turn your Bible back one page, the very last verse in the book of Judges tells us that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The book of Ruth takes place before Israel had a king. It was a time of horrifying decay in every area, spiritual, Uh, moral, political, social, everything was falling apart, and there was no king to put it right. The book of Ruth shows us what God is doing about a world that's falling apart, but one of the most amazing and precious things about the book of Ruth is that it does so by showing us what God is doing in the life of one poor, broken, lonely widow whose life is falling apart. And that means that one of the most important lessons we learn from the book of Ruth is this. It means that you can never separate what God is doing in your life from what God is doing in the whole world. You can never separate what God is doing in your life from what God is doing in the whole world. In other words, it's never just about you. Your life is part of a much bigger story, but it's really hard to embrace that when your life is falling apart. How do you respond when your life is falling apart. Let's begin the story by looking at the first chapter and seeing three things this week. We're going to look at the emptiness of Naomi, the whisper of love, and the road of return. Okay? The emptiness of Naomi, the whisper of love, and the road of return. All right? First, the emptiness of Naomi. Now, this book is named after Ruth, but in many ways it's really the story of this woman, Naomi. 
In the very beginning, there's a famine, so she and her family have to leave their home in Bethlehem. They have to leave their people, their place of worship, and go to the country of Moab just so they don't starve to death. And as if that weren't bad enough, while they're there, Naomi's husband dies. And then, even though her sons marry two Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth, after 10 years, her sons die. And on top of that, there's no grandchildren because her daughters-in-law are barren. Naomi has lost everything. Now, this would be difficult for anyone at any time in any place, but for a woman in the ancient world, her whole identity, worth, and value was tied to marriage and having children, especially sons. So if we were to think about all the things that give our lives worth, meaning, and value, if we were to think about those things as an airplane, Naomi has just been ejected without a parachute. So here's the question. How does she respond? Imagine if this were you. At the end of the chapter, Naomi gets back home to Bethlehem, and all the women of the village, they say, wow, could this be Naomi? But look at how Naomi responds. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. In the Bible, your name is an expression of your identity. Naomi means pleasant, but Mara means bitter. Naomi is saying, my name is bitter. I'm empty. And she says, this is the Lord's doing. Now, what do we learn from all of this? Already there are two big things that this teaches us. And the first one is this. I don't know that it's accurate to say that Naomi is deconstructing her faith, but she's in the same zip code. We talked about this a few weeks ago. There's a movement called Deconstruction Movement or hashtag exvangelical. People who grew up in the church grew up in Christianity, but they're leaving the church and many of them are leaving the faith altogether and for a variety of reasons. Things like hypocrisy in the church or evil and suffering in this world. And those are all understandable reasons. But people are asking difficult questions and they're expressing painful struggles. Naomi is asking the same kinds of questions and expressing the same kinds of struggles. So here's the first thing I want us to see. Naomi's struggles and questions and doubts are front and center in this story. That means that God himself... Is saying there's a place for your questions, struggles, and doubts. We just had a whole sermon series on the Psalms. We were looking at this, so I'm not going to go in depth this morning, but I simply want to point out this, that the Bible makes place in your life to ask your most difficult questions and to express your most painful struggles. But the second thing we learn is this. Not only does the Bible center Naomi's story of pain and emptiness, it also centers her story as a woman in a patriarchal male-dominated world. So in our culture, we would look at the oppression of women in the ancient world, and and we would scoff, we would judge, and, and rightly so. In fact, in our culture, especially in the wake of the Me Too movement, um, we take pride in the fact that... Um, that we center women's stories, women's struggles, women's voices. And yet the Bible was doing this thousands of years ago. In fact, the very reason that we in our culture are able to name the oppression of women, to give voice to women's stories, and even to do something about it, is precisely because of the Bible and the impact of Christianity in our world. 
It's, it's precisely because of the Bible's impact. And I mean, just look at the story of Ruth. Are there men in this story? Yes, but it's really a story about women. And even though God is the real hero of this story, who's he working through in this story? Yeah, there's a, a man who does some noble things. We'll meet him next week. But in this story, the people that God is working through are the women. Friends, the Bible has centered women's stories and women's struggles and plight in this world in a way that was countercultural and revolutionary in that culture. And, and because of that, the early church has centered women and honored women in a way that was radical in the ancient world. And so, um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but did you know that women flocked to the early church? Because it was the only place in that world that told them your worth and value as a human being is not tied to a man or your body as a vehicle of male pleasure. In many ways, the church was the first Me Too movement. And don't take my word for it. You know, I'm a pastor. I'm trying to persuade you. But listen to a guy like Tom Holland. Tom Holland is a highly regarded British historian. And by the way, he is not a Christian. He is not trying to persuade you to become a Christian. But he did write a book last year um, that's all about um, the impact of Christianity on the moral imagination of our world for the last 2,000 years. So in this book, he says, look, we take it for granted in our culture that a woman's body is not an object or a commodity. But why? He says, because 2,000 years of Christian sexual morality has trained us to think that way. And if it hadn't, he says, then the Me Too movement would never have had any force in our culture. And by the way, he's very fair in his critique. So he does point out that Christian theology has led to televangelists preaching male headship over women. But he also says that it's led to gender studies departments that critique Christianity's treatment of women. But the only reason they can do that, says Tom Holland, is because they're using Christian moral categories. So here's how he says it in the book. He says, any condemnation of Christianity as patriarchal and repressive derived from a framework of values that was itself utterly Christian. Friends, here's what all of this means for us. Naomi's story is showing us that the Bible gives you a place to bring your deepest questions and struggles and doubts. But the only way we can do that, the only reason we can do that, is because the Bible also gives us the moral categories that make sense of our deepest questions, struggles, and doubts. But what do we do with all of this? Well, that leads to our next point. We've just seen the temptation, I mean the emptiness of Naomi, but next we see the whisper of love. Um, when Naomi gets back home to Bethlehem, she thinks she's empty. She thinks that she is utterly forsaken and abandoned by God, but she's not, not really. And the proof is literally standing right next to her. It's Ruth. And yet no one in the village would have paid any attention to her because she was a total outsider, racially, religiously, socially. And yet, as we go throughout the story, we're going to see that Ruth is the very means by which God is transforming Naomi's life and bringing hope, healing, and renewal, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. How? Well, let's go back to the story. Naomi's on her way back home to Bethlehem, but she knows that as difficult as life is going to be for her, 
um, for her daughters-in-law as Moabite women, their lives would basically be over. Naomi knows that if, if Orpah and Ruth, as Moabites, go to Israel, that it's essentially condemning them to an almost certain life of widowhood, ostracism, poverty, and because of ethnic hostility between Israelites and Moabites, possibly even physical danger. She knows that the only loving thing would be to send her daughters-in-law back home, and that's exactly what she tries to do. So notice how she puts it. Naomi said, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. Now, this word kindness is one of the most important words in the whole Bible, and it completely dominates the story of Ruth. It, it, the, it's the Hebrew word chesed. Can we all say that together? Chesed. Good, you got that guttural right on the front end there. Chesed is translated various ways, steadfast love or mercy or kindness, and it's most often used of God himself. In fact, I like to think of chesed as the terminator of loves. It's a love that just keeps coming after you. So my own personal translation of chesed is this. It's a love that never gives up, never lets go, and never lets you down. Chesed is a love, God's love, that never gives up, never lets go, and never lets you down. And especially it's a love that sacrifices itself for the sake of someone else. That is what Naomi wants for her daughters-in-law. And that is exactly what she's trying to get them to do. And you can see that with Orpah, it works. She kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, and she goes home. But Ruth clings to Naomi, and then she says one of the most astounding things anybody has ever said in the whole Bible. She says, don't try to get me to go away. She says, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now, we hear this and we think, how wonderful. We hear this read at weddings and we think, how sweet. It's more than sweet. This is covenant language. A covenant is a legal contract that has penalties if you fail to keep your promise. When Ruth says, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me, she's enacting a covenant here. In fact, you have to imagine her slashing her finger across her throat as if to symbolize the penalty that she's calling down upon herself if she fails to live up to her promise. Friends, this is chesed language. It's, it's sacrificial language. It's covenant language. In fact, it's the language of God himself. Because when Ruth says, your people will be my people and your God, my God, listen, bells should have been going off for Naomi. That, that is a statement that God uses over and over in the Bible to affirm his love and his commitment to his people. Dozens of times in the Bible, in Exodus chapter 6, in Leviticus 26, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and dozens of other places, God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. It's language that God uses to affirm his commitment and his love to his people. When Naomi heard that, she should have known that God was reaffirming his love and commitment to her through Ruth. And yet she couldn't see it. Why? Because on the surface, Ruth had nothing to offer. In a patriarchal society, she was a woman. 
In a marriage-oriented society, she was a widow. In a family-centered society, she was barren. And in a tribal society, she was a foreigner. According to every social metric of the day, Ruth was at the bottom of the ladder. She was powerless, voiceless, weak, ordinary, and totally unexpected. And yet, that's where God was working. Because that's the gospel. You know, Naomi was probably looking for God to act in her life the same way you and I are typically looking for God to act in the big dramatic things. And sometimes God does work that way. You know, sometimes God, you know, he's in the burning bush or the parting of the Red Sea or the thunder and lightning and mountains on fire. In our lives, that might look like a sudden windfall of money or a miraculous healing, or a miraculous answer to prayer. Sometimes God does work that way. Sometimes God really is in the thunder, in the big dramatic things. But here's Ruth, and she's none of those things. So easy to overlook. So easy to cast aside. Blink, and you would have missed her. Friends, here's the thing that Naomi needed to know, and it's the same thing that you and I I need to know is that most often God's love doesn't dazzle you in the thunder, it meets you in a whisper. Most often, not always, but most often God's love doesn't dazzle you in the thunder, it meets you in a whisper. It's not always in the big dramatic things, it's most often in the quiet, ordinary, commonplace, even repellent things. And if that's true, then what does that mean for our lives, practically speaking? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen the emptiness of Naomi. We've just seen the whisper of love. But lastly, we need to look at the road of return. Most of the action in this chapter takes place on a road. But what's really happening on this road? You know, whenever you're studying a passage in the Bible um, and you see a word get repeated, uh, chances are you're on to something important. Ruth chapter 1 has 22 verses there's a word that gets repeated 11 times. It's the Hebrew word shuv, and it means to turn or return. This road is a turning point in their lives. For Ruth, it, it's, it's, she's turning to God for the very first time, but for Naomi, something has hardened in her heart, and she needs to return to God. How do you respond when your life falls apart? Let me offer you a, a couple of thoughts from this passage. And the first thing is this, we need to lose our conditions. Here's what I mean. Um, this applies if you're a Christian too, but especially if you are exploring faith or considering the claims of Christianity, it's easy to think, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you as long as um, I can have the family that I want, or the career I want, or the, the sex life, or the identity, or whatever it might be for you. Whenever we say that, you realize we're putting conditions on God. Because whenever we say, Jesus, I'll follow you as long as, and then you fill in the blank. Whatever goes in that blank for you, that's your God. That's your God. But look at Ruth. Remember, she had a narrative in her culture that said that a woman's identity, worth, and value was tied to marriage and having children. And yet Ruth rejects that narrative. And I know in or at least I would imagine that in our modern culture, we would give Ruth a little uh, round of applause and we'd say, what a prototypical modern liberated woman. But you realize that if Ruth lived in our culture, it would be some other narrative that she would be rejecting because every culture hands you a script 
and says, this is where you find the good life. Maybe today it's, it's not as much in marriage and family for some people. Maybe it's career success. Maybe it's your looks. Maybe it's your social media platform. Maybe it's sexual freedom. Maybe it's freedom from any social norms. The freedom to live an authentic life however you want without anyone telling you how to live, including God. In fact, that narrative is one of the most powerful narratives in our culture today. But look at Ruth. She's rejecting all of those narratives. Because here's the thing. Every single one of those narratives is telling you this is where you find ultimate meaning, worth, and value. And whatever it is, if that's your condition for following God, that's your real God. Friends, so often uh, the reason our lives fall apart is because all of the things that our culture promises to give us worth, meaning, and value in this world, it's because those things fall apart. That job that you thought would fulfill you doesn't. Or that freedom you thought would satisfy you just leaves you feeling even emptier. Or um, that call to construct an identity before a watching world just crushes you under its burden. Friends, Ruth is inviting you to follow her on the road of return to God, to lose your conditions. And here's the thing. It's not saying that things like um, marriage or family or career and success or sexual fulfillment or authenticity, that any of those things are bad things. They're not. But what's, what, what it means is that... Um, that you have to let God show you and tell you what those things are going to look like in your life rather than the other way around. When your life falls apart, how do you respond? One of the first steps is you lose your conditions. But the second thing is this. It means we listen for the whispers. It means that we learn to listen for God's love whispering to us in the quiet, ordinary, common things, in, in the unexpected things, even in the repulsive and repellent things, because that's where God is whispering to us. There's uh, some lines from an old Welsh poet named Henry Vaughan in which he's talking about how God's love manifests itself in this world. And here's what he says, Hark, how his winds have changed their note, and with warm whispers call thee out. And here, in dust and dirt, oh, here, the lilies of his love appear. He's saying that, that the winds of God's love come into our life in warm whispers, and that it's in the dust, in the dirt, it's in the common, ordinary, unexpected things, even the horrifying and repellent things, that that's where God's love is manifesting itself in your life. It means that we have to learn to look at the pain and brokenness of our life in a different way. Some of you may um, know about a Japanese art form called kintsugi. It's a way of mending broken pottery, but the, um, but the repair is made uh, in the pots and the bowls by filling in the cracks with gold so that what you end up with is even more beautiful than what you began with. It, it, the gold is in the cracks. The beauty is in the cracks. It's in the wounds. It's in the scars. Friends, some of you are struggling to trust God this morning, maybe for the very first time, or maybe you've been a believer your whole life, but the gospel shows us a God whose love and power comes into this world, not in the big dramatic things normally, but through the quiet ordinary commonplace things, the unexpected things, the weak things, the hardships and the vicissitudes of life. That's how it comes in. God's love and power comes into this world through the roots of the world. 
Because that's exactly how Jesus Christ came into this world. Friends, when the God of the universe came into this world as a human being, he came in a way that no one would have expected. Even though he is the king of all creation, he didn't come into this world as a powerful monarch. He came as an ordinary blue-collar man. And even though this God has all the riches of heaven, when he came to earth, he didn't come as a wealthy ruler. He came as a peasant in a backwater village from a poor family and an oppressed, marginalized people. So easy to overlook, so easy to cast aside. Blink and you would have missed him. And he didn't come to conquer and slay like a mighty warrior. He came to be conquered and be slain on the cross. But on the cross, Jesus Christ was conquering all evil, suffering, sin, and death for all time. You realize Ruth said, if I fail to keep my promise, I will pay the penalty. But Jesus said, if you fail, not if you fail, when you fail to keep your promise, I will pay the penalty. And he did. Because the cross of Jesus Christ is God's ultimate whisper. You know, back then, people did not hang little crosses around their necks. It'd be the same thing for us nowadays to, put, to hang like a little miniature electric chair around our necks. <coughs> Excuse me. The, the cross was a, a sign of shame and disgrace. It was not something that you talked about in ordinary conversation. The cro- if, if somebody was hung on a cross, they were ignored and avoided and, and cast aside. It was not a topic that anybody wanted to talk about. That means that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that just as Naomi could never have looked at Ruth standing before her and said, oh, this is how God is working in my life. In the same way, no one could have looked at Jesus hanging on the cross and said, of course, this is how God is saving the world. And yet the cross was the very means by which God was transforming all things. It was through the shameful, disgraceful, hidden, ordinary, commonplace, and repulsive things of the world. That's where God was at work. Friends, God's love, so often, it doesn't dazzle you in the thunder. It meets you in a whisper. That means you lose your conditions. It means you listen for the whispers. One of my favorite Christmas carols is O Little Town of Bethlehem. And the reason I love it is because the last verse is such a wonderful picture of everything we've just been talking about. It says this, How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of His heaven. No ear may hear His coming, but in this world of sin where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Friends, God doesn't dazzle you in the thunder. He meets you in a whisper. He's coming silently. You have to listen for him. Are you listening for God? Are you losing your conditions? Are you listening for God, for his work and his love in your life in the whispers? Are you letting the dear Christ enter into the brokenness and the pain and the difficulties of your life? He will turn your scars into gold. Let's pray. Abba, we praise you this morning. For you are the God that fills all the cracks and brokenness in our life with the gold of your love. And we pray this morning that you would help us to learn from Naomi and Ruth, Lord, um, that just like Ruth, we would lose our conditions, and we always have conditions in our life, Father, that you would help us to um, stop seeking identity, worth, and value in all the narratives that our culture hands us, and to find it instead 
in the love that you offer us on the cross of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray also that you will help us to listen for your whispers, Lord. Uh, of course, to be aware of seeing you and praying for you to act in big, dramatic ways in this world. We want to see you at work, but we pray also that you would help us to pay attention to the ordinary things, to the overlooked things, to the unseen and unexpected things, Father, and to be paying attention, to be attentive to the ways that your love manifests itself in our life in the whispers, Abba. We pray that you would do all these things in our lives and help us to be vehicles of your love in this world so that many others may come to see and know and trust in Jesus as well, Father, for we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to receive our offering at this time. Um, because of health concerns, we won't pass a basket. There is a basket in the foyer on your way out, but the easiest way to uh, participate financially with us is to jump onto our website. There's a give page there. You can, uh, you can make a donation there. So if you are a regular member or an attender, this is an opportunity for us all to partner together in the vision of our church. Our vision is to see a city made new by the gospel, spiritually, socially, and culturally. But if you are new or visiting this morning, we want to um, invite you, please, to remain our guest and our visitor and not feel any obligation to contribute financially. Instead, let us know if there's any way that we can serve you. We actually have a COVID-19 page on our website. There's information there about how you can get in touch with us. We have a fund that's set aside for helping people out, so please let us know if there's any way we can serve you. But for all of us, this is an opportunity to listen for the whispers this morning. We want to give you an opportunity to just to give, yes, but also to meditate, to ponder, to be quiet, and to listen for how God is speaking in your life this morning through his whispers of love. Let me pray for us, and then our band will play. Father, we praise you and thank you for the sacrificial generosity of this church. We pray that you would use these offerings and multiply them, that many others may come to hear your whispers and find refuge in your love. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.